Last week, uh, we've, uh, Joshua talked about Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Uh, not Joshua, he met Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, and uh, a man named Ananias came to him out of obedience to God and embraced him as a brother. And I want to continue in uh, this theme of, of forgiveness and move to the next section of Acts chapter 9. So we'll start with verse 19. For some days he, Saul, uh, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who had made havoc in Jerusalem, of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he came in and out among them at Jerusalem, preached boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when his brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Saul has a lot going on. It's a very complicated, difficult journey. Lots of complications. I mean, first of all, he has two names. Like, what the heck, right? Saul, Paul, okay? Now, this was not a pre-Jesus and like, you know, post-Jesus, not post, you're never post-Jesus, but you know what I mean. This is not, has nothing to do with his conversion. He just has a foot in two worlds. He's called Saul, that's his Hebrew name when he's with the Jews because he is Jewish. He is called Paul when he's with the Greeks. He's a, he's a Roman citizen and he travels all throughout the Greek world. So generally he's called Paul. Um, I probably will default to Paul this morning, but you can think of him however you best like to think of him. How about that? I'm giving you that freedom. Yes? Yes, I'm very benevolent. Okay. Um, he, uh, he was a Roman citizen. Um, like I say, he was, he was uh, uh, raised in the city of Tarsus, which was like a, it was a big city. It was in southern Turkey. It wasn't in Israel. And, um, and it was a, a port city, uh, very diverse, very cosmopolitan. It had a, a, a renowned university there, a place of learning. It's possible that Paul grew up and, and went partly to that university before he moved down to Jerusalem. We really don't know. But when he moved down to Jerusalem, he showed such promise as a student uh, that he became a Pharisee. Now, we have certain things we think of when we, when we think of Pharisees, and, and it's almost all, uh, uh, almost all negative because of so many of the interactions Jesus had with them. But I think, I think maybe we pigeonhole them a little bit too much because they really weren't all bad. In fact, the way they started was really something. I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here, but trust me, okay? Um, the, the Pharisees existed for the purpose of protecting their people, protecting Israel. 
Israel had almost been exterminated so many times in their history. I mean, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, uh, uh, so many times, and not to mention the Romans later on. They were just like a breath away from being, being wiped out. But the, the time that might have been the most like collectively traumatic was a time that's not in our Bibles. It was in the intertestamental period. And this was about 200 years before uh, where we are with Saul, okay? About 170 um, BC. Here's what happened. Um, Israel was being ruled by the Syrian kingdom and the, the king was a, a, a fella by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? He was not a good man. He was a very, very wicked man. And he launched a huge full-scale persecution against the Jews uh, in and around Jerusalem. And it wasn't just a, a, you know, a thing with violence. He was trying to outlaw the practice of the Jewish way of life. In other words, it was stuff like practicing the Sabbath, he said, is illegal. Having a copy of the Torah on your person was a capital offense. Now, this man loved Greek culture. He loved the, the Hellenized culture. And so he clearly was trying to replace what was going on with the people of God with this new hipper kind of thing. This, this guy finally went too far. Here's what he did. He went into the temple in Jerusalem, the holy place. He goes in and, and he, he makes a sacrifice, which would have been very much forbidden from him anyway. But he brought an unclean animal. He brought a pig in for the sacrifice and sacrificed him on the altar. It gets worse. He sacrifices the pig not to God, but to Zeus. He's like, goes full scale. Like, let me be as blasphemous and, um, and uh, it, you know, insulting to this people group as I possibly can. They called that the abomination of desolation. And the priest who actually made the sacrifice was killed by one of the other priests on the spot. And instantly there's like a war. That's the, the Maccabean revolution is what happened right there. So the Pharisees launched right in the middle of that story. They launched because they realized we've almost been wiped out by armies and we've almost been wiped out by culture and that will not happen on our watch. And so they... they they start the sect, and the sect is going to be very devoted to the Bible, the scriptures, the law and the prophets, the Tanakh, as they called it. Very devoted to the scripture. They're going to be very devoted to holiness. They're going to be zealous for the way of God, and they will protect this beautiful heritage that God's given them. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? In fact, does that, there's some aspects of this that might feel a little bit familiar. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul probably viewed Christianity as yet another threat to the way of life and to the Jewish religion. Can you see now why he had so much zeal to stamp it out? He thought, this is a perversion. This is wrong. We cannot let this go. And he wasn't just a run-of-the-mill Pharisee, he was a top theology cop. Like, he's one, they pinned a badge on him and everything. Like, like Paul, he was, he was one of the top students in the country, sat under Gamaliel, the rabbi. He was going places, and they put him in charge of prosecuting 
Christians, finding them, kicking doors open in the midst of prayer meetings, hauling people off to jail, getting false testimony, all kinds of stuff, and even executions. That was him. That's what he did. It was the dirty work, but you know, somebody's got to do it to protect the people. And then, all of a sudden, as we read last week, plot twist. He's traveling to Damascus. He falls off his horse. Was it Mark that said he didn't have a horse? There's no horse in that text. Don't take away my horse, Mark. <laughs> Bright lights, and, and Jesus says, hey, it's me, Jesus, why are you persecuting me? What a massive, massive paradigm shift that must have been in that moment. And he decides to follow Jesus. Now, can you see just how drastic a change this would have been? Like, this would have been a really mind-blowing thing, not just for him, but for everyone who knows him on all sides of this thing. Like, he's, he, he has, he's joined the dreaded side, right? Everything is now turned on its head. The last guy you would ever expect to turn like this just did. I mean, he was traveling down this road to arrest the people in this church. And what, what happens? He, he joins them instead. <laughs> he goes right into their prayer meeting. And instead of pulling out his, his sword and the handcuffs, he, you know what he does? He, he starts worshiping with them. He starts testifying of the goodness of God. And he shares this testimony and nobody can believe it. That's what happens. What a powerful shift. And his co-conspirators, they suddenly hate him. They are not happy about this. They suddenly have become his enemies, especially after he starts preaching and getting results. So we just read what happens. He, he, he disappeared for a while, right? You think at first that he'd go right to Jerusalem because that's where the, that's where the, the leaders of the church are. So you expect him maybe to go down there. That's probably where he lived before. He probably had a nice office there too and wanted to get some books out before they ransacked it, you know, or something. But he doesn't go there. He disappears. The only clue we get in this text is it says, after many days, and when you cross-check that with Paul's own writings, that was three years. <laughs> That's many, many days, right? Where does he go? You know where he went? Again, it's not in this text, but it's in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians. You know where he goes? Arabia. I, I don't know why. Maybe he had a summer home. I, I don't know. I tend to think he, he went in order to make a lot of revisions to his teachings. You know, like he had a lot of like Word documents to go, and oh gosh, like a lot of changes to make, right? Well, some scholars think N.T. Wright thinks that he might have uh, made a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. Just getting a new commission from the Lord, you know. I, I kind of love that theory, but we don't know. He just disappears for a while, and then he shows back up in Damascus. But when he comes back to Damascus, everything's different. He comes back to Damascus with a price on his head. You know, he walks into town. He's like, ah, good old Damascus, such good memories. It's where I met Jesus, where I preached my first sermon. Ah, look at that wanted post. Hey, you know, it's me. It's secret police running around trying to get him, working with the local authorities. He barely escapes. You know how he escapes? This is a very cloak and dagger moment. <laughs> They let him in a basket out the window on the city wall. <laughs> like that's, how, that's the only way he can get away. So now Paul has become the very fugitive that he was hunting. There's some irony, huh? 
I will hunt down those Christians. I am a hunted Christian. Like, that's what just happened very quickly. So, now, finally, where does Paul, the fugitive, go? Now he goes to Jerusalem. Now it's time to meet the disciples. He's been putting this off for three years. Imagine the scene, you guys. Imagine he knows where the disciples are. Remember, most of the church has been persecuted in Jerusalem, but the disciples have, for some reason, been sort of let to do their thing. He finds out where they are. And imagine they're having a prayer meeting. Maybe somebody's strumming the guitar a little bit, and they're singing the scriptures, and then going to prayer, and suddenly he's... <clears throat> Um, I'm Saul Paul, and, <laughs> and um, I used to um, persecute y'all. <laughs> Noticed you didn't have anybody on the djembe. I, can I, don't. This, this is an intense scene. Can you imagine? that you're somebody who knew Stephen personally, which would have been probably everybody in this room. <sighs> Look at what it says in verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He attempted to. And they were all afraid of him. <laughs> they didn't believe he was a disciple. Right? Of course! They probably chased him out of the room. I want so badly to know what happened in this scene. Somebody, I, I always say this, like, oh, I wish I knew. Somebody first service said, Jason wishes the Bible was three times as long as it actually is. <laughs> he wants to know all of these scenes. I do, it's so true. What happened here? I wonder if Peter chased him out. I wonder if Peter's like, oh no, and just like, because I would have wanted to do that, right? Now just imagine, just imagine you're somebody in that room and you say, I, I loved Stephen. Stephen was a brother to me. And you hauled him out on all sorts of ridiculous charges, and you sat there holding their coats while they killed my friend. No, 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 no. You are not, don't even think about stepping foot in here, bud. And then it wasn't just him. Then all your troops to all of your little theology cops were kicking indoors. You hauled away my grandmother. She died in prison. How could you? My kids still have nightmares because of you. Get out. <laughs> Marianne's like, yeah, get him. <laughs> That's the way I would have felt. And totally see it. But he has, he has an advocate with him, okay? He's got somebody who's been vouching for him. Barnabas. Barnabas, verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. I, I find it interesting, he says he took him and brought him because he was there and then he wasn't there. And I wonder if Barnabas like ran after him. Hey, hey, bud, hey, 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 Paul. Hey. He brings him back to the apostles and he's like, guys, Peter, chill. He declares to them how on the road, Paul had seen Jesus who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He vouches for him. I wonder if Barnabas was there that day when Paul preached and witnessed it firsthand. And now, this man has been risking his life for the same faith that all of us risk our lives for. 
So the church leaders are faced with a question. Will they forgive this man? Will they do it? And forgiveness, of course, is very complicated. It's so complicated. Nowadays, it's gotten complicated because we flatten it out. We oversimplify it. We make it one-dimensional. We have this idea. It, we use it sometimes in really unhealthy ways. And, and it's been used to, like, manipulate people into remaining in or returning to really horrific situations. The most common that you hear is, is domestic violence situations when people will tell a battered wife to go back to her abusive husband and live in that, in that moment when he's clearly a major threat to her. And, 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 and of course, there can be restoration in times, but man, if there is someone who's a, an active threat, you do not, eh. I've read this, this, uh, this book recently that I just cannot recommend highly enough. It's called Everything Sad is Untrue. And uh, it's a memoir about a boy who was uh, uh, from Iran. He was an immigrant boy. He, his, he, had, he had come over with his mother and his sister when he was like in grade school uh, after his mom had converted to Christianity and had to flee for her life, much like the, what we're talking about here. Um, they ended up getting asylum in Oklahoma. And his mom, uh, you know, really struggled to take care of two children. Um, really a, a tragic story in some places, in this place especially. She ended up marrying a man who had a serious anger problem and also had a third degree black belt. And he was terrible to her. And over and over again, he would beat her, over and over again. And finally, he shattered her jaw, and, and she said, I can't, I can't do this. And she, she took the children, and she left. Well, the man has a change of heart, and he goes to the pastor, hat in hand, and says, I wish I hadn't done that, I'm sorry. And the pastor calls the wife and says, you need to marry him again, because he said he was sorry, and you need to forgive him. Can you guess how that ended? She did remarry, and it happened again. I think it happened three different times. And it's very, very sad. And, and this kind of thing happens so often nowadays that forgiveness itself becomes confusing and, and it gets twisted. We see the way it gets, it gets twisted, and we wonder why people don't want to have anything to do with forgiveness. In fact, many of the younger generation are like, keep that away from me. Keep that talk away from me. Because this is what they've, been, what they've seen so many times. And, and we, we, need to, we need to, I want to parse this a little bit more because I think there's more to say on it, you know. The extreme examples that are out there, and I don't mean that they're rare. I just mean they're extreme. They are extreme. It's very sad. The extreme examples, I think, have, have, have overshadowed the, the, the actual day-to-day -day stuff that, that's a little bit easier to parse sometimes. You know what I mean? In other words, it... it, it it, people will throw out forgiveness because of the abuses that people talk about it. Does that make sense? So I want to I say this. We need to be clear about what forgiveness means and what it does not mean, okay? Forgiveness is or does not mean re-entering a dangerous situation. It does not mean we go back to the way things were. Forgiveness does not mean forsaking justice. We need to be clear. It does not mean forsaking justice. And if we tell people otherwise, we run the risk of forsaking justice ourselves. There are times when a person needs to stay well away 
from a person or a situation that is dangerous. There's times where, where we have to say, listen, this, you know, we have to separate here. There's great harm. Now, even in those times, forgiveness is not optional for a Christian. It's not optional. This is what you sign up for. When you, when you decide to follow Jesus and you submit your life and, and you say, I have done, I have rebelled against you and he promises to forgive, we must forgive. But what does that actually mean? It doesn't mean going back. Sometimes there are things that are just really, really messed up and will remain broken until this life is over. I'll give you an example. I had a friend, a pastor friend tell me a story years ago where somebody called uh, the church and said, I'm getting out of prison and uh, I'm, a, I'm a sex offender. I was in, I was in prison for sexual assault. Um, I believe it was of a minor. And, uh, but I've been in prison for like 15 years and I met Jesus and now I'm out and I'm registered and all of that, but I would like to come to your church. And that, that's, a, that's a really tricky thing for any minister to feel because you're like, okay, uh, you know, ministers have an obligation to love and to, to shepherd anybody, no matter the sin. Um, but you also have to really balance that with like, well, we have to first and foremost protect our people, you know, so it's a tricky thing. So he told him, okay, listen, here's what this would look like. And he, he told him there was things about, you know, elders always sitting with him and which bathroom he could be using. They're just different things like that that were real like common sense of like, we, we are gonna keep an eye on you and that's just gonna have to be the way things are. And he seemed to be okay with that. Then he came to one other thing, the pastor said, and of course you'll never be working with the children. And, and the man uh, took umbrage to that. He thought, well, wait a minute, Jesus has forgiven me. Like, I'm, I'm new, like, how could, you, how could you say that? Like, it, it's a new start. And my friend had to tell him, it, you know what, it is a new start, but there are some things where, it, some things in this life and they're broken and they're gonna remain broken in, in, until the end of this age, in, until the end of this life. There's newness and restoration, full restoration on the other side, but some things can't be fixed in this life. And that's gonna be one of them, that if you are a sex offender, you can never work with these children. And the man decided not to come because of that. Do you see the difference between, like forgiveness, you can forgive, but it doesn't mean this, it can't mean this. Do you see what I'm saying? It can't mean just turning back the clock like something never happened. That's not the answer. It's not a full reset. So what does forgiveness actually mean? Well, a man named Lewis Smedes wrote this wonderful little book called The Art of Forgiving. And he defines forgiveness as a process with three distinct sort of steps or waves, okay? Here's what he says. First, we discover, the, we, excuse me, we rediscover the humanity of the one who hurt us. Second, we surrender our right to get even. And third, we revise our feelings toward the person we forgive. Let's look back in order to sort of explore this. Let's look back on that scene um, with Paul and the disciples and think, how might this have looked? I imagine this was a process. I imagine it took longer for some than it did for others. Maybe some were 
were really thrilled and excited and quick to forgive, and some really had to work through some things. But here's what I suspect they might have had to think about. We're talking about rediscovering the humanity uh, of a person who hurt us. I wonder if they had to stop thinking about him as a monster. Do you know what I mean? Has someone ever really, really wounded you, and then you just start thinking of them as a monster? Or maybe it's not personal. Maybe it's ideological. Somebody's like on the other side of some big important issue, and you're like, those monsters, barely even human. You know, you start speaking very dramatically in an English accent just because it makes you sound more holy. Right? They probably had to stop thinking of Paul in that way, just stop dehumanizing him. Stop imagining him having a horrible death or at least suffering. You have to start thinking, okay, he did some terrible things, but he is a man. He is a child of God just like me. He has inherent value even if I don't have wonderful rosy thoughts toward him. That's step one. Step two, we surrender our right to get even. Oh, guys, this is hard. I understand this is hard because you really want them to know what it is you felt. We have to put down any thought of getting revenge. We want this Paul to feel exactly what Stephen felt, to feel exactly what our friends felt. We want him to bleed. And there would have been a really easy way to do this. They could have turned him in. They could have turned Paul in. I think the Pharisees would have been very happy about that. And you think, now, that's justice is different than revenge, right? This would not have been a situation of justice because this persecution was never just to begin with. But they could have, out of sheer revenge, had him turned in and, and, and beaten just like Stephen was beaten and maybe executed just like Stephen and all those other people. I'm sure there was discussion about that. And they had to personally say to one another, we're not going to do this thing. Now, again, this wouldn't have been justice, but there are times when we, we must pursue justice even in the middle of forgiveness. I think a wonderful example of this, we have a modern-day woman who I, just, I, I admire so much. Her name is Rachel Den Hollander. Does that name, anybody know that name? She was a, a, a lawyer. She, was, she used to be a gymnast for Michigan State, and she was the first one to bring formal accusations against Larry Nassar, the doctor who had abused literally hundreds of girls. And she had a statement that went viral about five years ago at the trial when she, when she extended forgiveness to Larry Nassar. But guess what? She didn't say, guys, we're calling off the trial. She was adamantly pursuing a life sentence for this man, and even in the middle of it, extending forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean you stop justice. What it means is she was not going to go up there and take revenge. There is a difference there. God said this. He said, vengeance is mine. In other words, here, give me the sword. Give me the sword. You and I, we cannot be trusted with vengeance. We cannot be trusted with that kind of, no, it's too big. It's too big. Must give it to him. And that's what he calls us to do. The third thing, we must revise our feelings toward 
the guilty person. This doesn't mean we get all gushy. This does not mean we be fake. I wonder what these guys did. I wonder if they said to themselves, you know, I don't like the man. It's going to be hard for me to get there. But I at least have to acknowledge this. Paul really thought he was doing the right thing. Ah. He really did. Does that mean he's innocent? No, of course not. People do terrible things to each other every day for really good reasons. And you're still responsible, even if you, I had a good intention here. Yeah, but dude, uh, you were wrong. You were so, so wrong. You didn't have nearly enough humility to question that thing, and you went after it. But you have to admit, he probably did think he was doing the right thing. Remember, he was trying to protect his people. He ended up doing some very awful, awful stuff in the middle of it. But the truth is, I've done some really hurtful things when I thought I was doing the right thing before. Have you? I wonder if they said, maybe it's time to at least stop attributing malice to him. Maybe it's time that we, maybe it's time that we at least acknowledge something good might have happened here. You know, each one of us can take that kind of step in the situations we're in. You know, it can be, it can be this. It can be, sometimes if it's a really, really big wound, it's simply this. And I think God honors this. And it's this. I want this person to somehow experience the goodness of God. Maybe you can't go so far as to say blessed because then you get pictures of winning the lottery or something. Like, no, that's too far. But I want them to somehow experience the goodness of God. And this might have to be a thing that you continue to come back to. Like, I don't want them to suffer. I'm not going to lash out. I want them to know the goodness of God somehow and in some way, maybe even a tiny way, some way. Not because they deserve it. People don't deserve grace or it's not grace. You know what I mean? Where do we get this idea? Everyone deserves a second. No, we don't. Nobody deserves a second chance. What in the world do we, we say these things? You don't forgive someone because they deserve to be forgiven. You forgive someone because it's a gift and you've received that gift. And it's your responsibility to re-gift it. Hashtag re-gift forgiveness. Where's Carly? That's our next t-shirt. Okay. You're supposed to, you receive it and you give it to others. It's not because you have an obligation. It's because you love him and you follow him. Let's get rid of all the dumb reasons that people say to forgive before we hold, get a hold of the good ones. Are you with me? So, I think they probably had to think through those three points and chose to forgive. But again, just because they were forgiving him, that doesn't mean they were like coming back together, you know? It doesn't mean that he, he automatically, you know, somehow gets invited to the, the staff potluck. Because he could still be a threat, you know? Like, they, they, they believe he's not a threat based on everything Barnabas said and based on all the evidence. But does that mean there's no risk whatsoever? I wouldn't say that. Because um, 
It is possible that he could turn against them down the road, is it not? He could turn them in. He could take revenge on them for Peter's outburst and chasing him, which was totally made up. There's a lot of things he could do, but here's the thing, you guys. There is always some risk in relationship. You cannot be in a friendship or in any kind of relationship with a person and be risk-free. There is always risk. And here's my, here's my concern, I, especially for you young guys. I want you to hear me here. Here's my concern. I fear that sometimes we worry too much about safety. And I'm not talking about the, the like, situations of abuse and violence. That's why I started there, okay? You know, sometimes we talk about safety as if we're trying to protect ourselves from ever getting hurt emotionally by anybody. And I don't know about you, but I've been in a lot of friendships. I've been in a lot of relationships in my lifetime, and I've had a lot of wounds, and I've done a lot of wounding. It's inevitable. You know what we tell people when they first come here, and they're like, oh, we love this church. It's the best church ever, you know, which every church gets when people come in. It's really great, but if we always, like, we're always nervous. We're like, you know we're going to let you down, right? In fact, we'll probably hurt you. Not intentionally, I promise. But probably at some point, you're going to come in and I'm going to say something and you're going to like think that I'm mad at you. I've had so many people over the years. They're like, are you mad at me? I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm not mad at you. I just get intense. On Sunday morning, I get intense. But I just wounded you and I'm so sorry. Like that is going to happen. We are going to probably hurt one another. But when we focus so much on safety, we rule out forgiveness ever happening. We rule out restoration ever happening because you make walls everywhere. Walls, walls, walls. You know what I'm going to do? That person, that person hurt my heart. So I'm just going to block them off. I'm not going to let them in at all. In fact, that's for some people, it's a way of revenge. They don't think revenge violence. They just revenge by completely cutting them out. And you guys, that's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. The fact is, Everyone's toxic. <laughs> My guy, Zach. We're talking about how we're sick of the word toxic we are. We need a new word. We need noxious. Everybody can be noxious in their friendships. Somebody, I saw this recently. Somebody said, guys, here's the, here's the ugly truth. You ready for this? Somebody is probably in counseling, talking to their counselor about you. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Because it's so true. We have this, this simplified thing of those are the ones who hurt me. They're the bad ones, and I'm the innocent good one. And I'm like, okay, obviously, there's, there's innocent and guilt in all kinds of relationships. But you guys, every single one of us has hurt other people. Every single one of us probably is in relationships where someone is really wounded with us, and we don't even know. We must be humble in this. And we must open ourselves up to one another with hearts of generosity and forgiveness, with hearts that say, I understand you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to play this perfectly and neither am I. And we're gonna, we, have to try to, we have to try to move on and walk together in this anyway. Forgiveness has this beautiful thing about it, you guys, and that it spreads. It spreads. I got it. I regifted it to you. Now you regifted it to five other people. It's great. What'd you get for forgiveness? What'd you get for Christmas this year? Forgiveness? More forgiveness? Yes. See, it spreads. Here's, how, here's what I mean from this story. You guys, you, you know what happens to Paul it, 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 after this. We're going to go and look at it the next couple of months. But spoiler alert, Paul does not have an easy life. 
He's going to be lashed. He's going to be stoned. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to be snake bitten. He's going to be illegally bound and shut away. He's going to be dropped out of an airplane. He's going to suffer so much. But you know what he's never going to do? He's never going to seek retribution from the people who hurt him. Really, he's not. He's not going to jump into to the silversmith's office in Ephesus and, and, and he's not going to like tear it apart. He's not going to come after Demetrius and, you know, throw a Molotov cocktail through his bedroom window. He's not going to do any of that. He's not going to go to the jailer who beat him within an inch of his life in Philippi and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't do that. And even to all of his former comrades in, in Jerusalem, he doesn't go, he, he's not seeking revenge. You know what he's doing? Oh, you know what he tries to do in the end of his life? You guys, he wants so badly to go back to Jerusalem, not for revenge, but so that he can, he can preach to the people who are trying to kill him. And all of his friends are saying, don't do this, Paul. And people are prophesying, don't do this, Paul. This is not going to end well. And he goes, I want to go anyway. And he does. <laughs> That's how much he loves these people. You know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of what Jesus said when the woman washed his feet and she said, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. That's Paul. He forgives and forgives and loves and loves throughout his whole ministry. You know why? Because he received so much forgiveness early on. Not only from Jesus, but from Peter and from John and from all the apostles. And from those people, and they said, we embrace you, Brother Saul, just like Ananias. We know you've done a terrible thing. We're not going to minimize that. In fact, we might have to have some long, long talks past midnight with a good cup of coffee because, bro, I am still so mad at you right now. They probably had to do that with him. But you know what? He heard it, and he repented, and those people opened up their hearts that there could be forgiveness, that it could be given in all directions. And that's all Paul did the rest of his life, is continued to forgive, and that's what you and I are called to. So let's stand together.